Thank you, Harrison. Well, good evening. My name's Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Vine Church. And hey, whether you are someone that comes here every Sunday for church or whether this is the very first time you've been in this building before or somewhere in between, uh, we are so glad that you're here and it is a joy to celebrate this Christmas Eve together with you. Well, hey, the English artist, English street artist Banksy once said, and I believe he was quoting uh, a Harvard dean, he said these words, Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Now, if I was to paint you a picture tonight, there wouldn't be that much comfort going on, right? You would mostly just leave this place disturbed at what I had produced. But I think as a general rule, good art does do that. It comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. And if you're not familiar with any of Banksy's uh, works, uh, he does a quite creative way of uh, communicating ideas. Now, I was showing uh, this quote and some of these pictures to one of the other pastors here at Vine, Matt. And he said, that's not art. That's graffiti. He was disturbed by the idea that Banksy would claim to be an artist. But uh, for others, some of the works of Banksy can be quite comforting because they communicate quite politically charged ideas in a clever or cheeky way that actually cause us to think and cause us to question uh, some of the things that he's talking about. Art comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. It has this beautiful way of evoking completely different emotional responses in different people. And the same can be said not just for art, but for Christmas Day. In this room tonight, we have some people that you just cannot wait for the clock to tick over to Christmas Day tonight. You cannot wait to wake up and dig into presents, tear them apart. You can't wait to dig into a delicious dinner or lunch tomorrow. You are excited for Christmas Day to spend time with family, friends, and loved ones. But for others, others of us in the room tonight, as Christmas Day approaches, along with it comes a wave of dread. Because you're not looking forward to the awkward conversations and arguments around the dinner table tomorrow night. For some of us, tomorrow isn't that exciting because this is the first Christmas that we've spent away from family and loved ones. And so it's not that fun for us to celebrate Christmas in a different time zone and different location to those we love most dearly. And still for others of us, since last Christmas, you've lost a loved one. And this Christmas will be the first Christmas that you spend without them. And so as Christmas Day approaches along with it, comes a wave of grief. The very same thing can evoke completely different responses in each one of us. And that can be said not just for art, not just for Christmas Day, but the Christmas account itself. In fact, I believe, and I hope you will too by the end of this evening, that the Christmas account is one which comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. The Christmas account is one which comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, Christmas isn't that disturbing. I thought Christmas is a story about a sweet little baby boy being born into the world. And Christmas is a time of joy and peace, of comfort, of hope. But I don't know if you, you caught it out as it was being read out. The first Christmas is a pretty disturbing story. The first Christmas is a pretty disturbing story. You see, I think we have this uh, idealized image of 
the first Christmas that we distill down into the perfect picture of the classic nativity scene. You know, there we have little Jesus lying in the manger with hay perfectly arranged around him. You've got Joseph and Mary often standing arm in arm next to each other, looking dotily down upon baby Jesus. You have three wise men with their gifts ready to give them to Jesus. There's an angel, there's a star. And somehow they're always arranged in just this perfect arc around Jesus. Like I think my mum, when she was arranging it, used to get out like a protractor or something and arrange the nativity scene around it. And look at it. It's like an adult petting zoo in there. You got a cow next to a donkey. And Joseph is cuddling a little lamb. Like it just seems lovely in there, doesn't it? Like I would like to spend my Christmas in that place. Wouldn't that be awesome? But if our nativity scenes were historically accurate, they would each come along with them, a little figurine of Herod. You'd place off to the side of Herod massacring babies, mustering all of his military might to bring down all of the baby boys in Bethlehem. That is what was going on at the first Christmas. Or perhaps if our nativity scenes were historically accurate, they would have an empty manger that would lay on its side and Mary and Joseph would have baby Jesus tucked under their arms, fleeing for their life as refugees into Egypt to escape Herod. The first Christmas was a pretty disturbing Christmas. And in fact, the passage that we had read out for us shows us that from the very beginning, Jesus has been a polarizing person. From the very first Christmas, Jesus has been disrupting and dividing people. And in fact, I hope and believe that we will see tonight that Jesus himself comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. Jesus comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. If you don't find Jesus a polarizing person, then it's quite likely that you have never properly understood Christmas. Or if you've never heard the Christmas story and either been incredibly comforted or deeply disturbed, it's quite likely that you have never properly comprehended the Christmas story. Jesus is a polarizing person, and in today's passage, we see people respond to him completely differently. And so let's unpack those two different responses that people have towards Jesus. We'll start with King Herod. Verse 3 tells us that when Herod hears about Jesus' birth, he was disturbed. Imagine that. King Herod, Herod the Great, the Roman client king of the Jewish people, hears about the birth of a baby and he is disturbed. He's threatened. Imagine um, Taylor Swift when she comes to Australia next year for her 2024 era tour. Any Swifties in the house tonight? A couple people? Okay. Um, Matt's excited. Yeah. Um, Taylor Swift is going to be performing, I think it's in Sydney, in the Acor Stadium. And can you imagine Taylor Swift sitting there in the green room of the Acor Stadium, scrolling through TikTok and coming across a viral video of a little two-year-old kid, like with a cowboy hat and a guitar, playing a Taylor Swift song and singing along to it. And can you imagine Taylor Swift seeing that with all her power and all her wealth and being disturbed by and threatened by this little child because she's worried that this child might overtake her fame and success. That's a little bit like what's happening with Herod 
tonight. Herod hears of Jesus' birth and he is disturbed by it. Why is it that Herod is so disturbed by the birth of a little baby? Well, it says in our passage that the Magi refer to Jesus as the one born King of the Jews. You see, Herod is disturbed because Herod is the King of the Jews. And so he hears about another king that's coming, another king of the Jews, and he, he's disturbed because he's quite comfortable being king of the Jews himself. Herod doesn't want anyone else to be king of his life. Herod doesn't want to be dethroned by anyone. He doesn't want to bow down to anyone. And so he hears of the birth of Jesus, the one born king of the Jews, and he begins to muster all of his military might to bring an end to Jesus by killing all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding suburbs so that he might wipe him out. Herod is disturbed by Jesus because he is comfortable being king. Contrast that with the response of the Magi. Now, Magi is where we get our English word magic from. Uh, and the Magi were most likely magicians, astrologers and astronomers from somewhere around Babylon. And they would have been incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful men that were advisors to the king. Uh, the king would have used them to give them instruction and strategy on war and political decisions. And these Magi, their trip that they took to Bethlehem wasn't just like some sweet little day trip up to the central coast. Now, the trip that they took from Babylon to Bethlehem was an incredibly long journey through the Middle East. If you wanted to get from Babylon to Bethlehem, it would take you 1,140 kilometers. And these guys didn't have Ubers or Sydney Transport. They were going either by foot or on the back of camels. If you wanted to travel that by foot, it would take you 257 hours nonstop to get there. That is the length that these guys went to to go and see Jesus. And not only was the journey long, it would have been incredibly costly. You see, it wouldn't have just been three wise men. In fact, there's nothing to suggest there were three wise men apart from the fact there were three gifts. Could have been two, could have been 20. But they would have taken along with them an entourage of people in order to help them carry their stuff, in order to protect them. It would have been an incredibly costly journey that they took to get from Babylon to Bethlehem. And it also would have been incredibly dangerous because there would have been robbers along the route. And so these grown, powerful men travel all the way from Babylon to Bethlehem. And when they get there, this is how they respond. The passage says, They were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just get that image into your head for a moment. Imagine these grown, powerful, wealthy men travel a thousand kilometers to find Jesus, to seek him out, to search for him. And when they get there, they fall flat on their faces in front of a little baby. They bow down before him and they worship him. See, when Herod hears about the news of Jesus, He's disturbed because he's comfortable being king. But the Magi hear about Jesus and they seek him out. They search for him, they find him, and they worship him. And they're comforted. 
And you know what's really weird, what's really peculiar about the way that these two different groups of people respond? Two completely different responses to Jesus. But the strange thing is, both Herod and the Magi believe the exact same thing about Jesus. Both Herod and the Magi believe Jesus to be the king of the Jews. But to one, when they hear that, Herod wants to get Jesus as far away from him as possible. He seeks to end his life. But when the Magi hear that news, they want to get as close to Jesus as possible, that they would search him out from a thousand kilometers away and come before him and bring him expensive and valuable gifts. And so what is going on here? How is it that two people can have such incredibly different responses to the very same thing? Well, this happens all the, sa- all the time on Christmas Day, right? Uh, you know, maybe every family doesn't have this, but does your family have any weird Christmas traditions that no one else really understands when you try and explain it to them? Couple people. Yeah, I'm going to try and explain to you one of my weird family traditions that you might not get. Here we go. My dad is a chartered accountant. Uh, and he would go to what I imagine were just thrilling chartered accountant conferences throughout the year. I don't know what they did, like play with Excel spreadsheets or something like that for a few days. But he would go to these conferences and he would get uh, like freebie promotional merchandise with chartered accountant branding or something on it. And he would collect this up the entire year. And then when Christmas week rolled around, he would wrap up this chartered accountant merchandise and place it under the tree to, to bulk out the gifts. You can tell he's an accountant, right? He's saving the pennies, giving on free merchandise to the family. But my brother and I, we just learned to love it. Because, you know, you'd never know what you were going to get. Like one year, it'd be an awesome double-walled stainless steel water bottle that would just last forever. And then the very next year, it'd be like a cheap and tacky plastic pen with the Chartered Accountant logo on the side that would last like three times and the end would fly off and it would never work again. We love the thrill of going under the tree and picking up a present and being like, is this, is this going to be the Chartered Accountant merchandise? And if so, what's it going to be? What are we going to get this year? And then my uh, now wife, Lauren, started coming along to our family Christmases about 10 years ago. And uh, there we were doing Christmas together for the first time, and we were sat all in like a little semicircle around the Christmas tree. And my dad goes under the Christmas tree and picks up three identically wrapped gifts, all in the same wrapping paper, all with the same silhouette. And he passes one to me, one to my brother, and one to Lauren. And in a synchronized fashion, we all open up this gift together. And I look over at Lauren, and I I hadn't really explained to her this weird tradition that my family does. And she has this look of confusion and like slight horror as she pulls the gift out and goes, ah, just what I wanted. A chartered accountant frisbee. <laughs> like the very same thing that my brother and I thought was hilarious just caused confusion in my wife because we thought it was this funny inside joke from our family and she thought she was going to get something useful for Christmas. <laughs> and it's the same in Herod and the Magi, right? They have the exact, uh, completely different responses, sorry, to the exact same thing. Completely different responses to the exact same thing. And the reason that is, is because of what was going on inside them, what was happening in each one of them internally. 
And the key to understand their different responses, the key that will unlock this for us is if we understand what was happening inside of them. You see, what was going on in Herod and the Magi, we see, is pride and humility. Pride and humility. Herod was disturbed by Jesus because he was proud. And the Magi were comforted by Jesus because they were humble. Herod was disturbed because he was proud. And the Magi were comforted because they were humble. Let's talk about pride for a moment. You see, Herod saw Jesus, this one claiming to be king of the Jews. And and he was disturbed by Jesus. Pride started to flare up in him because he was thinking, I'm the king. No one is in charge of me. I will bow down to no one else or nothing else. He wanted to remain in control. He wanted to remain on the throne. And if we're completely honest, whether we believe in Jesus or not, we each have a little Herod living in our hearts, don't we? We each have this little part of us in our lives that says, I'm not going to bow down to anyone. No one's going to tell me what I should do in my life or how I should live my life. I'm in control and I'm in charge and I will do whatever I please. And the Christmas story is disturbing because Jesus doesn't just claim to be the king of the Jews. Jesus comes into the world and he claims to be king of you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor, theologian, He put it this way. He said, We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of this world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The God of this world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. You see, the Christian story is disturbing because God comes and lays claim to us. And we're proud because we want to be the kings and queens of our own lives. But here's the thing. Herod thought he was on the throne of his own life. Herod thought he was in control. But in reality, we see that he is bowing down to a number of other things. You see, as Herod hears about Jesus coming into the world, the one that will be king of the Jews, and he starts to be disturbed by it, he's bowing down to to public opinion. He starts to be worried, what are other people going to think? Are other people going to think that he's the real king? And if he does take my throne, that's going to be embarrassing. And, And Herod starts to bow down to what other people might think or say about him. And Herod begins to bow down to the idea of being in control, being in charge. And we see when Herod doesn't get his way, he's frustrated, he's infuriated, he's annoyed. And look how it ends for Herod. Herod doesn't get what he wants. Jesus lives. But he ends up with the blood of Jerusalem babies on his hands. That's how Herod's pride goes from, that's where it lands him up. And if we're completely honest, we think that we are the kings and queens of our own life. We think that we are in charge and we are in control. But each one of us is bowing down to something else or someone else. Maybe for you, like Herod, it's popularity or others' opinions. Just seeking out the next uh, thumbs up or heart or like or whatever it is these days on social media. 
wanting others to approve of you. Or maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it's wanting to be loved by others. Or maybe for you, you're bowing down to just pleasure, to wanting to, to have that next experience. Whether it's traveling the world and seeing a beautiful sunrise or eating a delicious meal, or whether it's chasing experience and pleasure on the weekend. But the reality is that psychologists refer to that as living life on the hedonic treadmill. That this thing happens where you have a great experience and uh, the adrenaline, the dopamine spikes and you have a great time, but uh, they've found that it just drops straight back down to the baseline of where you were at before. And so if you want to keep the good feelings coming, you've got to continue to seek out and hunt out the next good experience and the next good experience. Maybe your life right now feels like you're living on the hedonic treadmill. Or maybe you're bowing down uh, to your boss or your workplace, working in a job you don't particularly like, for a person you don't particularly like, for longer hours than you'd particularly like, for not enough money. But you're bowing down to your boss and your workplace because you're just searching for the next promotion or paycheck. Now, I just want to stop and ask for a moment. How's it going for you? How is living as the king or queen of your own life going for you? How are you finding it? Contrast that with the Magi. Contrast that with the response of the Magi. We don't get much of their background or their life story. But it's evident that they looked at the world around them and perhaps even in themselves and they began to be a little bit disturbed. They were advisors to kings. And so perhaps they looked at the kings that they were advising and they started to realize these kings are quite incompetent. These, queens are, these kings are arrogant. They're proud. They're tyrannical. And they began to think there's got to be a better king somewhere out there. Or maybe these rich, powerful men began to look inside themselves and, and think, I project this particular image to people, but when I look inside myself, I feel like a fake. I feel like a fraud. And they began to be disturbed at the world around them. And in humility, they hear of Jesus and they go, we've got to find out about this king. We've got to go see for ourselves. And so they seek him out. They find him. And in doing so, they find comfort. Herod is disturbed by Jesus because he's comfortable being king. And Jesus is disturbing to him because of the pride in his heart. Whereas the Magi are comforted by Jesus because even though they come from wealth, from power, from prosperity, they look out and they look within and they see in humility their need for a better king. But what is it that led a grown bunch of wealthy men to seek out a little baby and worship him? Like what is it that would lead them to do that? Well, they believed Jesus to be the king of the Jews, and they obviously saw something there. They obviously saw Jesus and believed something about him. But we have a far clearer picture as to who Jesus is. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the only times that that, that phrase, the king of the Jews, is only used twice. You'll find the phrase king of the Jews right at the very beginning in today's passage that was read out for us, and then right at the very end, two times. Let me read out for you the second time it appears in Matthew's Gospel. This is what we see about the kind of king that Jesus is. It says, They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. 
And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots and sitting down. They kept watch over him there, and above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. See, Jesus is the kind of king that would be enthroned on a cross and have a crown of thorns placed on his head. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a king that would die on a cross for the people that he loved. He's a humble king. He's a servant king. He's a saving king. You see, the beauty of the Christmas story isn't that little baby Jesus didn't die at the hands of Herod and was saved. No, the beauty of the Christmas story is that Jesus went on to live and willingly died on his own account so that he might save others. That is the beauty of the Christmas story. But why would Jesus go to such excruciating and humiliating lengths on the cross? Why would he do that? Well, we see that the depth of what Jesus faces on the cross is directly proportionate to the depth of what is wrong with the world. You see, this year, it's been quite obvious that the world isn't quite right. The world is weary. The world is messy. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to open up my news app every morning, not knowing what the next thing is going to be, whether it's going to be more war, more famine, more death. We look at the world around us and we see people wrong each other. People wrong us. And in fact, if we're completely honest, we wrong others. Imagine with me for a moment if you were to wear a GoPro camera on your head that just recorded everything that you said or did in life. Now imagine with me for a moment if that camera could not just see your words, and your actions, but also it could read your thoughts. And imagine if the footage of that camera was uploaded to YouTube and sent out to all of your friends and family and your workplace to see. I don't know about you, but if that happened, I would be horrified. I would be terrified. I, wanna, I would want to find a way to take that link down and destroy it so that no one would see what was on it. Maybe you find yourself in a similar place. Each one of us, if we're honest, has added to the wrong that is in the world. And the Bible refers to that as sin. Uh, the late New York pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God and the world he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus says that is our main problem. You see, that's pride, isn't it? That's the little Herod living in each one of our hearts. It says, I don't want to bow down to anyone. I don't want to live life as God tells me how I should. And Christmas is disturbing because it's not just a story about a little baby. It's a story about a Savior that comes to save us from our sins. And so if you sit here tonight and you don't think that you need a saviour, to be completely honest, you don't need Christmas. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the Christmas story is. 
So Jesus came to the world as a baby, but grew up to go to the cross to be disturbed on our behalf. So that if we put our trust in him, we might have comfort, that we might be rescued. Uh, Two years ago, I hopped on a plane the week after Christmas. Remember that. It was the week after Christmas. Hopped on a plane, uh, sat in the row with my family, and in front of me sat another family. uh, And before the plane had even taken off, the, the daughter in this family just started acting up and throwing a fit. And the dad, after some time, turns to the daughter and says to her, if you don't cut that out, you're going to lose a lot of Santa points. This is the week after Christmas. Like this poor girl has 51 weeks for Christmas and she's already starting the year in deficit. But it works so well, right? Like one of the fundamental paradigms that we bring to Christmas is naughty or nice, bad or good. Because it just works so well at motivating children to be on their best behavior, even if Christmas is 51 weeks away. And I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of taking that paradigm and mapping it onto Christianity itself, thinking that God cares the most about bad or good, naughty or nice. If we're bad, God kicks us out. And if we're good, God accepts us. But what we've seen tonight is, if we're completely honest, none of us are all that good. All of us have actually added to the messiness and the brokenness of our world. All of us has rejected God as our king. But the good news is the fundamental paradigm of Christianity isn't bad or good. It's pride and humility. It's pride and humility. You see, if you sit here tonight and you find yourself thinking, I don't need a savior. I don't need a king. I don't need to bow down to anyone. Then the story of Christmas will just be disturbing to you. The idea that a little baby would have to grow up and die and that you might need another king of your life. You'll, you'll leave tonight disturbed by Christmas if that is your response. But if you're able to look within yourself and in humility recognize that you don't have everything together, that you're able to just be a little bit disturbed by what you see in the world around you and what you see inside yourself. And you're able to come to Jesus and say, I need a better king. There is comfort for you tonight. See, for many of us, there is comfort in Christmas tomorrow. That's what Christmas promises. The comfort of a delicious home-cooked ham, the comfort of that brand new crisp diary for 2024 that signifies a blank slate for the new year. The comfort of knowing that you have put up this year the right boundaries to block out your annoying Aunt Helen so she no longer triggers you. There's comfort for many of us in Christmas. But if we're completely honest, the ham that we eat will last... You know, the day or maybe for a few weeks, the new diary that signifies the blank slate for the new year in a few months' time will be dog-eared and we'll realize that we're just the same person with the same habits and the Gregorian calendar ticking over from 2023 to 2024 doesn't actually change anything. And Helen, you know she'll find a way to jump right over those boundaries that you have set in place no matter what you do. If that is where our comfort is placed this Christmas, 
we will be sorely disappointed tomorrow evening. But the comfort that Jesus offers if he is your king is a comfort far deeper, far greater, far more profound. It's a comfort of knowing that you don't need to have your life completely sorted. You don't need to have all your ducks in a row. But that you can actually in humility acknowledge that you don't and come to God and he accepts you in spite of it. There's comfort in the Christmas story knowing that right now you might be far away from your family. But that God is near to you. And there's comfort in the Christmas story knowing that whilst there might be arguments and awkward conversations and Aunt Helen might trigger you and frustrate you tomorrow, that Jesus is someone that has experienced the depth of human experience and he knows what you're going through. And there is comfort knowing that Jesus is the most humble, the most kind, the most loving king you could ever bow down to. And so my question for you tonight is, will you in humility be disturbed by what you see within and bow down before Jesus and worship him as the Magi did? Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you looked at the world and you saw our messiness and our brokenness, but that your response wasn't distancing yourself from us, but actually you drew near to us. As Jesus took on flesh, walked amongst us, experienced the messiness and brokenness of the world and sought us out by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. Lord, I pray tonight that there would be people in this room whose trust is in you and that, Lord, we might be reminded that our comfort is found nowhere else but in you. And, Lord, still for others, might there be people tonight that are challenged for the first time that seek you out and in humility call you their king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.